Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org slash daily. It is not news to anyone that relations between Canada and China are sitting at an all-time low. And ever since Prime Minister Trudeau appointed François-Philippe Champagne as Minister of Foreign Affairs last year, word is the feds have been working to reframe Canada's policy approach to China. It's expected any time now. With us to explore what it should look like in the nation's capital, in Wellington West, there's Roland Paris. He's University Research Chair in International Security and Governance at the University of Ottawa. And in Ottawa Centre, Sherry Wong. She's Executive Director of Alliance Canada, Hong Kong. In Waterloo, Ontario, Anne Fitzgerald, Director of the Balsillie School of International Affairs and Professor of International Security at Wilfrid Laurier University. And in the east end of the provincial capital, a former Canadian ambassador to China, David Mulroney who's now a distinguished senior fellow at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. This is a great group to discuss uh, tonight's issue. And Roland Paris, I want to start with you because I want you, if you would, to give us just some of the background behind this letter that was sent this past summer to the Prime Minister to persuade him, in essence, to free the Huawei executive, Meng Wanzhou, in exchange for the freedom of the so-called two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who've been in imprisoned in China for uh, going on 500 days now. Uh, it was signed by parliamentarians, it was signed by diplomats, academics. What's the story there in your view? Well, I think that it was a group of people who are frustrated as many Canadians are, as most Canadians are with the situation right now. And uh, I think most Canadians are more than frustrated. They're very angry about the detention and arbitrary detention of the Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor in China. Um, I think for this group, part of the frustration is that this situation arises from uh, our detention of Meng Wanzhou, uh, which was in response to a U.S. extradition request. And so I think that this group feels that Canada has been put into a very difficult position in order to deliver somebody who's uh, been indicted not by Canada, but by the United States, and that Canada is paying the price for this. Personally, I think that it was uh, not good advice. I respect all the people on that letter. Uh, I think that it would send absolutely the wrong message if Canada were to begin negotiating uh, her uh, her release directly with the Chinese in the midst of this extradition process. So I'm glad that the government uh, decided not to accede to that request. Well, apparently the 18th Prime Minister of Canada agreed with you, and his name is Brian Mulroney. And so I want to go to David Mulroney with a question on that. No relation, obviously. But apparently the former PM congratulated Justin Trudeau for not giving in to the pressure. And then later in the summer, uh, the new Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, called for what he, I guess, was calling a more principled, tougher approach to China. Do you think we are now seeing, among decision makers in this country, a widening gulf on how to handle China? I think there may be a divergence within government itself. So we had, just last week, Ambassador Dominic Barton, Canada's ambassador to China, in a conference uh, in the, at the University of Alberta with the Chinese ambassador Song Pei Wu and, and other notables, when he was talking about um, the, the need to build the relationship, the, the looking at China almost exclusively, apparently, from a, an economic lens, and I think ignoring what we've learned over two years, 
which is a significant risk that China poses to our security, to, in some cases, our economic viability, and to the world order that Canada has invested in. And what's interesting is that this concern was expressed directly in a memo, the, the policy memo that the Department of Global Affairs gave to new minister Champagne when he became the foreign minister, when they warned about the strategic risk that China poses. So we're hearing on the one hand that China is our future, and on the other, that we need to rethink China because what we've learned over two years is that it poses a significant strategic risk to Canada. And that sounds like a bit of a conundrum. Would you agree? Well, of, of course, we've been uh, we've been really affected by these heart wrenching issues uh, concerning China and their demonstration of uh, a lack of rule of law. Um, but it demands realism over idealism. So a lot of space for these different conceptions towards China have opened up, not just because Canada's position on China is uh, perceived to be unclear, but also due to a why a lack of a, a larger strategic primary framework for foreign policy. So when those things open up, all sorts of divisions can break out. And it also leads a country to interact by way of tactics as opposed to strategic approaches. So the issue of whether or not uh, it's a minister's statutory right to end an extradition process is, I would submit, a short-term tactical issue. The larger strategic issue is uh, whether or not our extradition interests with the United States trump our humanitarian interests towards the safety and security of Canadians unfairly detained abroad. So not only do we have an obligation here to codify our national interests, but also to enumerate them, to clarify to Canadians what we will and will not stand for. I would like to pivot and talk about the Hong Kong angle on this story. But before we do that, Cherry, uh, Roland, jump back in here and just give me your view on this quickly. Well, I, you know, I think there is obviously a debate taking place in government, outside of government, like a similar debate is taking place within the within many of our uh, the political systems of our allies in Europe. The uh, attitudes towards China are changing very rapidly. But I think that um, the Canadian public on this both recognizes China as uh, hostile and untrustworthy and want but does not want to cut off trade with China, doesn't want to sever economic relations and doesn't want an escalating dispute. And so it's managing how to push back against China without risking a an escalation that would end up hurting Canada more and trying to do that working with our allies who are themselves trying to readjust their positions towards China. I think that's the bigger uh, story about what's happening here even in Canada. Okay, understood. Uh, as promised now, Sherry, I'd like to get you into the conversation. Uh, just by way of background, you're from Hong Kong. You're a pro-democracy activist from there. Um, we should point out that earlier this year, in July, Canada suspended its extradition treaty with Hong Kong as part of a package of responses to the, the imposition of that new security law that China has imposed on Hong Kong. What does all of that say to you about the state of Canada's relationship with Hong Kong today? I think Canada has taken an important step in uh, the in supporting Hong Kongers, but also in standing up against the uh, authoritarian agenda of Beijing. But realistically, uh, the extradition treaty, while suspended, 
Hong Kong Canadians are still at risk. Uh, we have seen China use their diplomatic relations with other countries to extradite Canadians, and other Canadians are being arbitrarily detained in China. Uh, I want to draw the case of Hussein Jalil, who's a Uyghur Canadian who's been detained since 2007. Uh, we have other Chinese Canadians who are unnamed, uh, detained in China and denied uh, denied consular access. So I think it's, while it's a first step, uh, I think the lack of a strategic framework in approaching China is the um, the flaw that Canada is dealing with right now. Well, let me follow up on that with something that was reported in the New York Times just a few days ago, and it goes like this. Foreign governments should not benchmark what happens in Hong Kong against standards that prevail in Western countries. Those are governed by a political system entirely different from China's. Instead, they should benchmark Hong Kong against the rest of China and measure how the city can maintain its unique characteristics, openness, a commitment to personal rights and freedoms, respect for the rule of law, and the ability to reinvent itself economically. Beijing's national security law is saving, quote, one country, two systems, by ensuring that Hong Kong does not become a danger to China. Uh, and come on back in here. This piece makes it clear that China will call the shots, and there's very little that Western countries can do about it. Um, you know, for better or worse, is the author of that piece right? Well, China sees this as opportunism. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it also, I think, not just demonstrates a sense of powerless amongst the West, but it also demonstrates a lack of knowledge on how the West can move forward in influencing and engaging with China on these issues. Uh, we need to understand China's strategic goals much better and the foundation, political culture, quest for economic supremacy, uh, military and security intent, uh, Belt and Road objectives, much, much better than we do already. China will always flex its muscles uh, and exercise its national sovereignty in its own neighborhood. Um, so, you know, engaging with them needs to understand that this quest for economic supremacy really requires peace. So not military expansionism. But there uh, is also different conceptions of the individual that China brings. Their pursuit of economic goals is based on, uh, so it's a revolutionary economic model, one that we um, uh, really have troubles identifying with. So it's all about education here and knowledge and ways of navigating through in a way that um, allows options to open when the irritants are removed. Um, at the moment, we don't have a plan to hit the ground running with pace when those irritants are removed. David, would you agree with that observation that, that among people in Canada who ought to be in a position to influence the agenda, there is, according to Anne, a, um, a lack of knowledge about China's aims and legitimate aspirations? If anybody who is responsible for our foreign policy, in particular our foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis China, has a lack of knowledge of how China operates, then I think they should maybe crack open a history book or read media reporting on China over the last 20 years. The problem in Hong Kong is that Canada and other Western countries have been feckless and irresponsible as step by step, China dismantled one country, two systems. And the, the person who wrote that piece in the New York Times, of course, is a member of the pro-China establishment in, in Hong Kong. So we are complicit in this. Uh, we should have learned our lesson long, long ago 
But we learn that lesson by learning a lesson about China. And it's not that difficult. China is now in, we, we, we feeling that it is returning to its old status, not just as a regional power, but as a global power. And it's pushing out not just in the region, as Anne suggested, but well beyond the region. We're feeling the effects of Chinese interference, Chinese espionage here in Canada. Same is true in Australia. The same is happening in Europe. We're seeing Chinese soldiers fighting with Indian soldiers in the high passes of the Himalayas. We're seeing China's influence in the South China Sea, in the Tasman Sea, in, in, across Africa. And we're seeing it use its Belt and Road Initiative, which is a a Chinese investment vehicle where it's really um, uh, promoting its system and its control in a variety of countries bordering China and beyond as a means of gaining glo greater global influence. So we should have learned this lesson long ago. We better learn it pretty quickly uh, because it's beginning, China's reach is beginning to uh, extend to Canada. Well, given all this, Sherry, how optimistic can you possibly be about the future of democracy in Hong Kong? Uh, it's definitely looking grim uh, with the implementation of the national security law, the basic freedoms that Hong Kongers used to enjoy, uh, whether it is freedom of information, media pr freedom, uh, it's all being uh, enroached upon and corrupted very quickly. Uh, but I think what we have to be clear about is the West has power to counteract uh, the authoritarian agenda of Beijing. It is not military uh, response, but it is about using our soft power effectively. And without a national framework, we will not be able to counteract the uh, global authoritarian agenda of the Chinese Communist Party. Roland, can you put some uh, meat on that bone? What would an effective use of soft power by Canada on the China file look like? Well, I think the starting point for us is that we need to protect ourselves here at home from various uh, kinds of interference, whether it's attempts to gain control of sensitive sectors, high-tech sectors, resources, and the like, or to uh, acquire uh, proprietary uh, research. Um, so we need to start by, in a sense, uh, being aware of how, ways that we can harden ourselves here. Uh, when it comes to pushing back against China, listen, um, you know, some people in this country talk as though Canada is a superpower that we alone can bend China to our will. China, Canada's leverage with China comes primarily through working with our allies. Right now, many, many countries, including Canada, I'm thinking about France, Germany, uh, the UK, uh, are in the midst of rethinking their strategy towards China. We're, in, we're right before a US election where we might see a change of administration. Both parties are, 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 are much harder on China now, but a Biden administration would be a little bit less chaotic on China. I think that the conditions are emerging for a grouping to come together and Canada can help pull that grouping together that would define limits on what's acceptable in Chinese behavior and collectively uphold them, but without recklessly seeking a kind of confrontation with China that could spin out of control. Resolve and restraint, that would be the ideal combination. Resolve and restraint. Okay, to that end, and I'm going to put this to you, and you know the expression, you know, if you want to know, if you want to know where you're going, it helps to know where you've been. So let's look at where we've been. Uh, 1947, during the Cold War, uh, the Berlin Airlift, which successfully protected West Berlin from the Soviet Union. However, 1956, the Soviets invade Hungary, nothing happens. 1968, the Soviets invade Czechoslovakia, nothing happens. You could even say, more recently, 
uh, when Russia went into the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, the West again, um, well, we can argue about how much the West has done or is doing, but suffice to say it certainly hasn't risen to the, to the uh, significance of the Berlin airlift. Is there anything in your view that we should learn from these examples that we could apply to this situation? There are things that we can learn, but there are also some major differences between some of the or the era that you described uh, before. So the major difference is that during the first Cold War, um, there was uh, an aim to prevent a nuclear war that limited our use of military as an instrument of power. So we had to galvanize around instruments such as diplomacy, economy, uh, information, and our system of alliance. The other difference is that uh, we could isolate and surround the enemy to a certain extent or the origin of the threat. This is not possible with China because China has spread through its Belt and Road Initiative across the world. So we cannot isolate or um, surround China. This is an economic Cold War. But one key lesson that we can learn from all those experiences is to come together with our system of allies, to have unity, not just across the Five Eyes, across our NATO allies, but also across our Asian allies. David, I don't want everything always to be about Trump, because I get criticized on this program uh, from time to time when I bring his name into things too much. However, comma, if you're looking for Canada to broaden its allyship with like-minded countries on this issue, and you have somebody who's, let's just say, as unpredictable on international affairs as Donald Trump is, how do we do that exactly? Well, there's no doubt that that's made all of this much more difficult. But I think it's also true that when people uh, don't want to take action on, on China, they walk Donald Trump through the discussion. And we saw that in the letter that you um, referenced opening this program. It's, it's very heavy on Donald Trump, less heavy on China's leader, Xi Jinping. And if I can go back to the question you posed about you know, Berlin and Budapest and Prague and Ukraine, what that is, in addition to sort of cataloging Soviet oppression, is we didn't know it at the time, but each of those steps marks a gradual weakening in the uh, Soviet Communist Party. We should pay attention to what's happening in China. Xi Jinping, the leader of China, has put on hold very cautious efforts at political liberalization and reform within the Communist Party, as, as basic as consensus rule, as basic as having a limit on the term that the president of China sets. He is now in a process of what seems to be a fairly significant overreach. He has significant opposition in the party. So those who proclaim the future is China need to think very carefully about potential weakness within the party itself. And remember, this is an aging China, a China that is under huge environmental pressure, and a China now that has conflicts with a great number of countries in the world. So we need to think about what we didn't know that was happening in the Soviet Union. We assumed that it was a monolith of great power. We need also to be aware of the fact that there are pressures within China that are building and that in many ways its leader, Xi Jinping, is exacerbating. Well, Sherry, let me put this to you. I, I don't hear too many experts talking about deep concern that we're about to have a nuclear war with China in the same way that we certainly were concerned uh, that relations between the West and the Soviet Union could uh, break out into nuclear war. I don't hear that. Having said that, Sherry, do you worry that China is simply too big, too powerful and too spread out 
for us to have any impact at all on their decision making? I disagree 100%. I don't think China is that as big and powerful as they present themselves to be. In fact, they have positioned themselves to be alone, uh, you know, against the liberal democracies. And if liberal democracies around the world is able to unite uh, and apply a critical and culturally relevant lens on how to approach China and end their systems of influence, because what makes China so powerful is not necessarily uh, only military power, only economic power. It is the systems of influence they have implemented across the globe, whether it is through Belt and Road initiatives, whether it is through United Front Work Department, or um, uh, the private sector. So, like, as long as we're able to create a strategy that incorporates liberal democracies, values, human rights, uh, and support our allies, who um, notably I want to bring up Taiwan, uh, it is an independent democratic country that is in the front line of dealing with China. We can learn a lot from Taiwan if we are able to restore that diplomatic relations and treat Taiwan as it is an independent democratic country. Okay, Roland, start us off on a new line of inquiry here. We've been talking about how we can potentially influence things over there. Let's get some better understanding of how they are trying to influence us over here. For example, how actively do you think the Chinese embassy in this country is in terms of trying to influence Canadian policies, politics, and so on? Well, I think there's a distinction between any embassy that's trying to influence uh, policies. I mean, that's what that's what embassies are for. You know, the uh, the the declared diplomats are meant to have contact with local officials and try to advance the goals of their home country. I think the question is whether there are. Uh, uh, methods being used by uh, the Chinese government in Canada to to try to pressure or to induce uh, Canadians uh, to take certain positions uh, that are uh, that are uh, that are supportive of the Chinese government in a way that is the result of either coercion or bribery. In effect, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I think that. My sense is that uh, that this is much more extensive in some other places, uh, like uh, Australia. Although I don't think we should be naive about uh, um, you know about the cases that we have heard about, um, and this is something that has to become you know a very uh, very careful carefully watched uh, and by our security services. And if there's if there are attempts by China to interfere within our domestic politics, then the, those have to be dealt with very firmly. Yeah, David Rowland is quite right. I should have I, I should have um, characterized the question better by saying what what nefarious things do you think they're up to over here, which would which would attempt to, for example, fix the outcome of elections or or other things that we would find extremely untasteful. I, I think they're they're less interested in elections at this point than, than in policy and in uh, influencing or in, in affecting what we refer to as elite capture. So the reason I think Australians uh, seem to be identifying more cases is the Australians have been much more active than we have in pursuing it. And they actually have legislation that requires former holders of high office, such as uh, cabinet ministers and prime ministers and senators and senior public servants to declare after they retire uh, where their money is coming from, whether they are in fact speaking on behalf of China. And lo and behold, they're discovering that this is a problem in Australia. We also share with Australia the reality that the Chinese government penetrates student organizations within the diaspora. 
They put pressure on students from Tibet or Hong Kong or Xinjiang who speak out or, or students from the rest of China. Uh, they control uh, the local Chinese media. They uh, are interested in uh, electoral politics at the provincial and federal level. And I wouldn't rule out at least some efforts to influence uh, at that level. So we have a significant problem. It's just we are the laggards in the West in taking much interest in it. And I think if we start interested in it, we're going to find that it's a real it's a real issue. Sherry, how about you on that? What's your understanding of what's going on over here directed by over there? Uh, we know for a fact that United Front uh, Work Department is a arm of the Chinese Communist Party that is surveying uh, Hong Kongers, Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese folks, Uyghurs, and Chinese dissidents overseas. Uh, for, speaking from personal experiences, I have been harassed, I have received death threats, rape threats from uh, my involvement with the pro-democracy movement here in Canada. Uh, I think we have to make it clear that uh, a China strategy has to include domestic policies because this is a matter of national security. And like you said, uh, there there may be distasteful things happening, but if we are not uh, aware of what's happening behind the scenes, if we are not informed about what's happening behind the scenes, we cannot produce good policies to counteract uh, these um influence and interference coming from a foreign government, and it is not only limited to China. Sherry, I, I want to be careful how I ask this next question, and if you are at all nervous about answering it because you don't think it would be in your interest, then, then by all means do so. But you just said some really shocking things, and I wonder whether, you know, is this sort of the typical, you know, social media, you know, garbage that one hears, or have these threats risen to a level where you've had to call uh, law enforcement authorities in order to protect your safety? I have called uh, for support at the launch of Alliance Canada Hong Kong uh, back in January. Uh, I booked my hotel room under my friend's name and two days after the launch of the Alliance I received a threatening phone call to my hotel room. They told me that they are coming to collect me and that I must leave immediately and that was in Vancouver. Uh, I don't believe that is an isolated incident because uh, there has been well-recorded um, harassment campaigns carried out against pro-democracy activists, against CCP dissidents. And it is something that our law enforcement agencies know about but are unable to take action on it. And I think um, it is... It is definitely a weak point in our domestic policy and in protection of Canadians, especially when we are choosing to exercise our freedom of expression and assembly. What did you do when that call came in? I sit and shook for 10, 15 minutes before I was able to call um, the team on the ground. Uh, but it's something that I knew is going to happen to me because that is the same uh, harassment campaigns that they have carried out against every other Chinese activist or Sino activist uh, in Canada, in Australia, overseas. And these kind of harassment campaigns are not uh, isolated incidents. They are systemically carried out. And uh, our alliance have produced a report about last August where Hong Kongers carried out our first solidarity movement across the globe. And over 20 of our rallies were 
uh, harassed and intimidated with counter protesters who took our photos and threatened to send them to the consulate services to identify us. So I think it's important to frame this conversation, not what if the Chinese Communist Party is active in Canada. It is the Chinese Communist Party is actively interfering Canadians um, freedom of expression and assembly here in Canada. What should we do about it? Okay, thank you for sharing all of that. And can you respond to some of what you've just heard? Well, uh, these very concerning things that Sherry uh, has shared with us serve as just further evidence that um, uh, our analysts can take in, our very good analysts in Ottawa can take into consideration on how they impact those things that mean a lot to us as Canadians, our vital interests. That should then direct policy responses on these things. So if this puts some blockages to bilateral links and direct links at the moment, there's other things that we can do through our multilateral channels. Um, For example, not even through our multilateral channels, we should be accepting more uh, students, international students from different Asian countries, not just Chinese students, into this country. Uh, to enrich the experience, not just for Canadian students, but also for the Chinese students and hope that they take different messages back to their countries when they leave here. We can be influencing uh, China through our UN channels, through the environmental uh, agenda issues, making sure their obligations to COP26 are going in the right direction, encouraging quality standards with their Belt and Road Initiative and a sustainable financial model. Right now, African countries across the continent are about to default uh, financially because of the way the Belt and Road Initiative has been set up and the financial model underpinning it. It is unsustainable. We're seeing Zambia at the brink already. Um, Canada has always been strong at not leading powers, but nudging them in the right directions, going for a common highest outcome as opposed to a lowest common outcome. So let's get active in our multilateral fora, leadership on the Arctic Council with a now near Arctic power and try to influence the best we can. But multilateralism is a tool of foreign policy. So without those clear foreign policy goals in place, we won't Uh, be clear on how to go forward with that tool. Well, with just a couple of minutes left here, Roland, let me put this to you, because it's pretty clear that that the the kind of China uh, that Sherry just described and that Anne just described uh, is not having its way with Canadian public opinion. Let me just read a couple of numbers here to you. Angus Repoll from May, 14% of adults expressed a positive opinion of China, 14%. And then a couple of months later in June, Ipsos uh, finds 82% of people believe Canada should be less dependent on China for trade. Uh, How do you, you know, I mean, these are polls, they're snapshots in time, but they certainly seem to reflect a prevailing view in the country uh, that has been that way for quite some time. How does, how do those kinds of polls affect the decision makers in Ottawa as they try to find the road forward? Well, clearly, it sets the parameters of, of, of where you could go as a decision maker. Uh, if you're going to go against a, a kind of 82 percent position, then you would have to really try to expl- to persuade people why it was necessary. I think that, uh, you know, I did a paper for Chatham House a little while ago, which looked at 
uh, many polls on Canadian public opinion towards China. And the shift, the hardening of Canadian attitudes has been dramatic. Over many, many years, even in moments of disputes with China, Canadian attitudes towards China were public attitudes were kind of ambivalent, neither very strongly positive nor very strongly negative. It kind of depended on the question you were asking. Now the distrust is profound. It's not going to go away even after this dispute is resolved. So it's part of a new warrior phase in our relationship. But in that Angus Reid poll that you cited, uh, two thirds of Canadians also said they wanted to continue trading with China and did not want to sever economic relations. And it's pretty clear that Canadians also are conscious of the risks of an escalation with China. So there is, I think, an inherent pragmatism in the Canadian position. And if we're looking out for our own interests, then there are areas in which we do want to continue cooperating with China. And there are areas in which we must be pushing back harder against Chinese, uh, specific Chinese behaviors. That's a tough policy to manage, but that's the policy we actually need. Well, we will watch this federal government as they pursue their new policy of so-called coercive diplomacy. And I'm grateful to all four of you for coming on to TVO tonight and talking to us about it. Roland Paris from the University of Ottawa, Sherry Wong, Alliance Canada, Hong Kong, Anne Fitzgerald from the Ball City School of International Affairs, David Mulrooney from the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at U of T. Great to have you all on TVO tonight. Many thanks. Thank you. Thank you. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.